You can pray until you faint. But if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And it's no need of running and no need of saying, Honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. Welcome to Black Power Talks. I'm Soliana Bakel. And I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili. And freedom is on our minds 24-7. On today's episode, we'll be raising up and celebrating Black August by continuing the fight to free political prisoners locked down in colonial prisons. The roots of Black August are in the uprisings and rebellions of African freedom fighters who were imprisoned as a result of their political activity during the height of the Black Power movement of the 1960s. In the 1970s, Black August was started by incarcerated Africans in California in observance of the death of George Jackson. It's now honored as a month-long salute to the African liberation struggle, recognizing such historic milestones as the Haitian Revolution, the birth of Marcus Garvey, and the deaths of Jonathan Jackson and George Jackson. Black August is a month of remembrance and resistance, especially dedicated to our African warriors imprisoned for their heroic stance fighting for African liberation. Some of our African freedom fighters, such as Jaleel Mutakim, Janine Africa, Janet Africa, Mike Africa Sr., Charles Africa, and Sundiata Koli have been released from captivity. Sundiata and Mutakim both spent almost 50 years behind bars. Some of our political prisoners were released only when they were critically ill and then died shortly after. Mutulu Shakur remains in prison after his 1986 conviction of conspiracy and bank robbery. A former member of the Black Liberation Army and founder of the Black Acupuncture Advisory Association, he was also charged with helping the Saudi Shakur to escape from New Jersey prison in 1979. Mutulu also suffers life-threatening medical conditions. Mutulu Shakur was born in August 1950. He is 72 years old. The decades of captivity that our heroes have faced is because they have refused to repudiate the anti-colonial struggle for African liberation. First of all, we got to throw out the window this whole notion about being Americans. Americans don't catch the hell that we catch. Americans do not catch the hell that we catch. So ain't no, ain't no such thing as us being some kind of, we're not African-Americans, Negro Americans, Americans tomorrow, Americans gonna be one day second-class citizens. We are no such thing as that. That's the fallacy that we're hanging on to. And to the extent that we continue to hold on to this notion, we will never solve a problem. That's like somebody kidnapping you and then saying that you're a part of the family, Come on. right? Uh, because they like to talk about America being this nation, they say it, of immigrants. 
Well, first of all, America is not a nation. It is a prison of nations. And not, not just us. I mean, they stole half of Mexico. Anybody remember that? They stole California, Texas, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah. All of that used to be Mexico. They stole all of that. And then the people who, and then drew an artificial line to separate the people from whom they stole the land from the land itself. And everybody comes across the land, now they're illegal aliens. And they are the ones who, with us, are stuffed in these prisons all around the country. Is there uh, some coincidence that America has the largest prison system on the planet Earth? More people in this prison in this country than any place on Earth. In fact, the second largest prison in the uh, population in the world is in California. No, I'm sorry, it's Texas. Uh, well, I'm sorry, it might be California. In fact, they tied with each other from time to time, California and Texas. They got more people in prison in California than they have people in prison in China with a billion people. Guess who's in prison in California and Texas? Africans and Mexicans. We got a situation where in this country, there are 2.5 people, something like 2.3 or so million people who are locked up in prison. At least half of them are African people. If they're free, if Africans and Mexicans, or so-called Latinos, went to prison at the same rate that white people go to prison in this country, the prison population would be reduced by half. One out of every, it's been said, one out of every human being on earth who's in prison is an African in this country. That's no American, ain't no American. We've been kidnapped, we've been strong all around the world. We call ourselves by all kinds of phony names with false consciousness having been imposed on us. We call ourselves Ghanaians, Nigerians, uh, Senegalese, uh, Haitians, Jamaicans, uh, uh, Negroes, uh, all kinds of funny names like that. And in every place, uh, we've been convinced that we are some kind of minority incapable of taking care of ourselves, right? When the truth of the matter is that collectively, we are at least 1.5 billion strong, but confused and disorganized. And it's hard to get organized if you don't even know who should be on your team. You, you can't even win when you're pulling the wrong people on your team. I aspired as a youngster to be a boxer and might have been pretty good. And I'm glad that, that I had a good friend of mine who stopped me uh, from stupidly entering the boxing ring. And I'm not saying there's any boxers in here. I don't want to be offensive. <laughs> but. Uh, but because uh, uh, my, 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 my friend told me, he said, look, you don't want to do this because even your own manager sometimes are working against you. So they grind up glass and put it in your mouthpiece. And you're, you're fighting and you're drinking your own blood and getting weak and weak and don't even know what the hell is happening to you. You got the wrong people on your team. That's what happens when you become an Afro-American. That's what happens when you unite with America. You, are, you got the wrong people on your team. They putting crushed glass in your mouthpiece. You understand? So, it's important for us to know who the hell we are. We are not American citizens. We are not a part of America. We are captives, and we've been in captivity now for several hundred years. Africa is our national homeland. It has been stolen away from, and we've been taught to hate it. We've been taught to hate Africa and everything about Africa, including ourselves. And that is just a reality, and that's something that we need to come to terms with because we've been separated from each other all around the world and we keep relating to each other as though we're strangers from each other, as though we don't have a relationship. 
Well, that old Haitian over there, he don't speak my language. You don't speak your language. <laughs> That's the problem. You know, so the slave master who kidnaps us speaks English and demands that we speak English. And the slave master who kidnaps us in Brazil speaks Portuguese and, and requires them to speak Portuguese. And the slave master who kidnapped us and took us to Haiti speaks French and required them to speak French. And then we act like we're strangers because we all speaking through the slave master's tongue. But guess what? Even though the slave master speaks French, English, German, and all those other things, they get along fabulously together. It's just we who speak in his language who become more like him than we are like ourselves and don't get along with each other. So we are one African nation of people. And we have to really lock in that. And guess what? Not only are we Africans, we are fabulously rich if we go get it. And uh, uh, instead, we'll fight uh, for welfare here in this country when Africa is the richest continent on earth in terms of, um, of, terms of natural resources. 12 million square miles of wealth that they've taught us to hate with Tarzan movies and other negative images that's been imposed on our brains by white power, by imperialism. And if Africa was so bad, you wouldn't have to shoot all the white people to get them to leave. <laughs> and it is literally true, like you take a place like Sierra Leone, where Comrade Nate, you know, has been doing work and where African, all African people's development and um, uh, uh, empowerment project uh, does work. Sierra Leone. Uh, where, where some of the most beautiful diamonds in the world come from Sierra Leone. When you go to your mall and you see all these diamonds up there, chances are they came from Sierra Leone or some other place from Africa. But in Sierra Leone, they dig out these diamonds and they only get paid 32 cents a day and a cup of rice. What? And in Sierra Leone, they don't even have clean drinking water. And they don't even have a national electric grid. Everything is run on generation, generators. This is because of the wealth that's been stolen from us. We should be fighting like hell to take back what belongs to us, take our resources back for ourselves, because Africa is the, is the birthright of every African person on earth and all of your children. That's your child's birthright. And you go there and look at it uh, and, and trying to save up your money because you know you're going to be getting married. And so let's go broke, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and get this. You got kids who shoot and kill themselves for the bling when all the damn bling in the world belongs to us. It's our bling in the first damn place. You understand? And uh, so I'm just saying that we have to be conscious of who we are and what our real mission is. And that's why the difference in what you see with Africans here, for example, and what you might see with Palestinians, or you might see with other people who are Arabs, etc. They maintain a connection, even though they might be here. They set up communities here, but they maintain a connection and they are part of the struggle. That's why when, they, when Uncle Sam got ready, to commit these horrible crimes that they're committing right now uh, all over the Middle East. They started locking up Muslims and Arabs all in this country. They took them to Guantanamo Bay. That's why they got prisons here that people didn't even know why they were being arrested and who was being arrested because they knew they were going to have to fight them. That's why they cowed them down, beat them down to make good Muslims out of them because they knew they would have to fight them. But we see stuff happening to us every damn day. And then it's been able it, they've been able to get away with it without some unity by us. That's why we're here. We have to organize. We have to fight on every front we've talked about. We have to fight on this whole issue of what the police are doing in our communities. We have to create, create economic entities uh, to take care of ourselves. We have to build a revolutionary movement 
because we are going to have to fight our way out of this situation. We are not going to be able to vote our way out of here. I'm sorry. I'm not telling you not to do some electoral stuff. I'm saying you can do electoral stuff if it's tied to the greater good, to the greater strategy that's been developed by your community, not by you. That was Chairman Omalia Shetela on the role of prisons in U.S. society. In his talk, Chairman O'Malley declared that the United States is not a nation, but a prison of nations. He highlighted the way that the U.S. has used incarceration as a tool of counterinsurgency to crush the revolutionary spirit of colonized people. Jonathan by Elaine Brown from her 1973 self-titled album, Elaine Brown. Jonathan is an ode to Jonathan Jackson, the young brother of Comrade George Jackson. Like his brother, Jonathan Jackson is also a Black August martyr. Today on Black Power Talks, we have a guest, 
and consistent contributor to the Burning Spear newspaper, a monthly Black Power journal in its 54th year of publication from behind enemy lines, Comrade Mackendall Sinkay. Uhuru, and welcome, Comrade Mackendall. Uhuru, Comrade. Uhuru, Uhuru. So, Comrade Mackendall, Chairman O'Malley Eshetela has always stated that we need to turn colonial prisons into African internationalist universities. This episode of Black Power Talks is about Black August. Black August upholds the struggles for liberation of African people, particularly rebellions that took place this month, martyrs who died this month, and heroes born this month. George Jackson is a fundamental figure to our observance of Black August. He was a political prisoner who found consciousness while incarcerated. So let us know, what was your pathway to political consciousness? My pathway was the same pathway of Conrad George Jackson and Malcolm X, just coming to prison as a youth and being introduced to books like The Autobiography of Malcolm X, Soul on Ice, Soul of Dead Brother, Blood in My Eye, The Wretched of Earth. All these books started me out on a path of self-education, self-discipline, self-examination, and self-transformation. They made it possible for me to become the man that I am today. Oh, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, you are an avid reader and an avid writer as well. Also, early on, you were exposed to the writings of Chairman O'Malley Teller and the Burnisburg newspaper. Can you tell us something about that? Yes, I first I read my first issue of the Burning Spear in 1992. And that's when I became aware of Chairman O'Malley Yasatella, the African People's Socialist Party, and the Uhuru Movement. And it provided clarity to all the things that I was confused about in this country regarding racism, because a lot of times we use racism when the word is really colonialism. We mean racism when we talk about us being oppressed by a foreign and alien state power or oppressed by the Americans. We really be calling that racism, but it's really called colonialism. So Chairman Amali's works clarified things for me. I read colonialism, the major problem confronting Africans in the U.S. I read Stolen Black Labor. I read The Road to Socialism is Painted Black. These slim booklets, you know, provided clarity for me on the colonial question and the colonial situation about people in this country. So after that, I was no longer confused about the conditions our people live on. Absolutely. You definitely are an avid reader and all of those things, you know, um, work to clarify the question of colonialism. Absolutely. So um, you wrote an article that was published in the July 2022 issue of The Burning Spear, and it was entitled U.S. Colonial Prisons, the Present Day Sale and Trade of Africans. And in it, you talk a lot about, you know, the history of African slavery and you draw a direct line to modern day prisons. So can you talk a little bit more about that connection that you made? Yes, the imprisonment of our people for all purposes and intents started in Africa when we were captured as Africans and confined in slave forts like the House of Slaves on Gory Island or uh, Elmina Castle on the Gold Coast in Ghana. These slave ports were nothing but prisons. So then we transported to the United States or what became the United States and we were imprisoned by colonialism. We were its captives. We worked for a lifetime. What we would consider life without parole today that's what slavery was for us. We were condemned to slavery for life. 
with no parole, no medication or anything. We was there for life. To escape crime, to escape slavery was a crime. To be held in slavery was not a crime. So it was nothing but incarceration for our people that continue once the chattel aspect of our subjection to colonialism ended with the 13th Amendment. But it has continued historically from Africa on up to contemporary times with the prison industrial complex, which is just the modern equivalent of convict lease. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, thanks for that. Because one thing that stands out to me is the fact that every single thing an incarcerated African does revolves around producing value for the colonial capitalist system at large, but the prison system uh, in general. I know in places like Texas, they got this thing called grow what you wear, grow what you eat, things like that, which have people literally out there growing cotton, growing watermelons, uh, herding animals, and sometimes on, you know, government land that used to be slave plantations. In a place like California, what they call good time isn't what people generally think. People generally think good time is, say, for example, you know, not getting in trouble. But good time, time off, is time that you were actually working a job. So if you refuse to work one of these uh, jobs uh, to produce more value for the system, they make you write out your whole sentence and stuff like that. What do you, uh, what, what do you have to say about that? It varies. That varies through state to state. You know what I'm saying? Like in Oklahoma, what you have is a level system. And, you know, we're all required to have jobs here. Sometimes the jobs may entail you working in the kitchen, working in maintenance, but just working anywhere in prison where labor power is needed. And so if you're on level one, your pay grade is based on your level. If you're level one, you don't get anything. If you're level two, you get $5. If you're level three, you get $8. If you're level four, you get $14.45 a month. This is a month. This is all you get paid a month. Now, in certain prisons in Oklahoma, they used to have telemarketing. Until recently, that program was shut down due to sex offenders being involved in it. But these are jobs that pay pretty good from a prisoner point of view, but it's still exploitation. They'll pay the prisoner $100, but the job that you entail brings in hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars for the private corporation for whom you are working while you are in prison. So the jobs that they have in prison, you're really not getting nowhere near the value you're getting for your labor because you're not really getting paid for any of these jobs. Like I say, in this state, you get $14 a month. That's the most you can get paid. And the prices for everything on the commissary is sold at inflated prices. So all you have is $14 a month to live on. You can't really get too much of anything with it. So you still got to rely on your family and everything. But the labor exploitation is pretty extreme in here to the point that they closed down the work centers in Oklahoma a few years ago and the continent towns got the crime because they no longer had access to that free prison labor. Now they have to hire people to do that work that prisoners did for free. So this whole state relies on the free labor of prison in the era of the prison industrial complex. 
Uhuru, thank you, Makondo, for that overview. So in your article, you also talk about, you know, the global nature of colonialism. And to quote your article, how Africans sought refuge in the East, the Midwest and the West, but we found the same treatment from the colonizer population. And, you know, how Africans are forced into these ghettos, which you call a breeding ground for violence. So how have these conditions, you know, systematized the process of locking up Africans? Because it was... We was targeted from the gate, you know. Once slavery was abolished, the black codes replaced the slave codes, and they were petty laws that the colonizers put in place so that they can criminalize any behavior on the part of Africans. If we was walking down the same sidewalk as a colonizer, that was against the law. If we if we didn't have a place to stay, that was against the law. If we was vagrants, that was against the law. So they threw us into these prisons. And we had to work for these private corporations for the duration of our imprisonment. And they got paid off this labor that they got for free. It's the same thing when they put us in these ghettos. We did not create the ghettos. We did not create poverty. We did not create joblessness. We did not create homelessness. We did not create any of the socioeconomic conditions that exist within the African colony. But as human beings, we respond and we react to those conditions by making certain choices and decisions involving crime and involving work. So once we get caught up in making those decisions, we fall into the traps of crime, drugs and gangs. And that leads us to prison because now our population has become redundant and superfluous. So they no longer want us, want us in their society. They feel that a certain strata within the colony is no longer leaded and we too much of a threat to be on the streets, so put us in prison. We can be contained, controlled, and concentrated here. That's why the American prisons are nothing but concentration camps for Africans. But these are the conditions that exist within our communities, and we are responding and reacting to these communities, I mean, to these conditions. And it causes us to get caught up in the criminal justice system and the vicious cycle of prison, parole, prison, because once we get released from these prisons, guess what? They don't want to give us jobs because now we are convicted felons. So there's no employment. So you relapse back into recidivism and the cycle repeats itself because everything is geared toward making you fail and stay in prison where they're making money off of you. For instance, at this prison where I'm confined, they get paid $150 for every prisoner every single day. And there is 3,700 prisoners at this prison. So parole is essentially non-existent. Commuting prisoner sentences is non-existent because they got to have these prisons filled in order for them to make money off of us while we are in these prisons. And they have a five-year contract on each prisoner here. And this is a private prison. Okay. So it's all about economics and controlling us. And then once you release us, we return it to the same communities that we came from and the communities hadn't improved the conditions are still the same. The only thing would be different if we was relieved from these prisons and we was now socially aware and politically conscious and we joined the Uhuru movement or any other movement for the liberation and self-determined people from colonialism. That would be the change, but we had to make that change within ourselves and take the revolution out there into society and work amongst the masses. Oh, yeah, I really appreciate your analysis, the level of analysis, which highlights the way that incarceration 
the mass imprisonment of African people has been used as a tool of counterinsurgency to turn Africans against each other and also obscure the colonial contradictions at play uh, in society and things um, like that. You know, it really is illuminating, especially, like I said, in this idea, you said that it turns the ghettos into a breeding ground for violence, that you showing us that the horizontal violence that we might exhibit amongst each other is the um, symptom of the colonial violence, but Africans sometimes can't see that. So, you know, I've noticed that, you know, you know, even in uh, the way in which Africans are forced to, you know, ignore the colonial contradictions inside incarceration as, as sort of uh, guidelines for releasing things like that. You know, uh, they will force Africans to, uh, you can't blame anybody but yourself, all this self-help sort of uh, logic as opposed to underscoring the colonial contradictions at play, underscoring that none of these conditions that we face as African people uh, are the result of our own uh, choosing. So I really appreciate that. Yes, and I think that also is that we understand that we did not create any of this. And the violence that exists within our communities, we understand that we did not create the drug economy. The drug economy was imposed upon us. So if you got a community where there's no jobs, then the drug economy becomes the biggest employer in that community because there's no jobs. So we participate in our own self-destruction in the same manner that when the British and the French and the Americans imposed the drug economy on China to deliberately turn China into a nation of drug addicts so that they can weaken it and conquer it and colonize it. That's essentially what they've done in the case of African people in America. But instead of conquering and colonizing us, they've already done that. What they are attempting to do is destroy our will and our capacity to resist colonialism and no longer fight for our freedom and self-determination because we are too preoccupied chasing money or chasing highs. But once they get us into the system, we're still all criminalized, whereas on the other hand, they create a new excuse as for why the colonizers are engaged in drug trafficking or drug abuse. Now it's a disease amongst the colonizer, whereas drug addiction was a crime amongst us. You see what I'm saying? So it's just understanding that the counterinsurgency put those drugs in our community so that we can prey on each other, destroy each other, and then take all the blame for it. But then they can launch the war on drugs and come in and act like they helping resolve the problem. Just they do in the world once they create problems, differences in Africa. But the point I want to make on something you brought up, brother, is that it's a connection between the violence in our communities out in society and the violence in prisons inside of these institutions because it's the same conditions. This is microcosm of what's going on out in society. The gangs that fight and kill each other on the streets fight and kill each other in prisons. And guess what? The prison puts everybody together. So all you have is stabbings, assaults, stabbings and assaults. They go on in this prison. And then on top of that, we have the Aryan Brotherhood who are waging war on Africans in this prison system to the point that Africans were being killed on various yards throughout the Oklahoma prison system. And nobody out in Oklahoma was speaking about it. 
only a few voices was raised, but for the most part, those murders and those deaths were swept under the rug. But that's what's been going on in this prison system in Oklahoma. It's just full of corruption, crime, violence, murder, and mayhem and madness. And there's been no attention brought to it up to this point. But it's connected to the same violence that exists within our communities. It's the same, it's the same violence. The prison system imposes that violence and the gangs perpetuate that violence amongst themselves. But it's, it's the same violence that we're facing out there that we're facing in here. The struggle out there is a microcosm in here and vice versa. Oh, thank you for that. Them a dance to forget. Them a dance for no fret. Them a sing, them a sing, man. What a day when the pendulum swing. What a day when the well run dry. And the children ask you why. And the pit and the meat and we all live in it. And the game is the same and who is to blame? The system. The system. The system is a fraud. I said the system. The system. Is a graveyard. I said the system, the system, the system is a fraud. I said the system, the system, the system is a grave. That was The System by Muta Baruka from his 1983 album, Check It. You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today we're discussing Black August with Comrade McIndall Sinkay. So, 
Comrade McIndoe, we know that Africans are murdered every day by the police. In your article, you've identified the police as an occupying army that protect and serve the colonial order. Can you expand on that? Yes. The police are only in our community to protect the colonial system and the colonial order and to keep us under control. That's what they was, that's what they was created for. People like to say the relationship between the African community and the police is bad today, but it has never been good because the police has always been there to repress and suppress and control our people. The U.S. Marshals was founded to track down Africans who had escaped from slaves, from slavery. It was founded to track them down as fugitives. The law enforcement of this colonizing nation was founded to keep African people under control. So when they're on our communities, all they are doing are protecting the property rights and the colonial system and the colonial order and the colonial status quo and to keep us under control. They are designed to rule and regulate our lives and serve as the front line of defense against the African community and the African revolution. But as a standing army, yes, in terms of it being a militarized police force, it is an occupying army in our community. That's what it has always been from the very beginning. Oh, Haru, thanks for that clarification, absolutely. So we know that the Black Power Movement of the 1960s was militarily crushed by the U.S. government counterinsurgency program. And one aspect of Cointel Pro was the incarceration of thousands of Africans who were politically active in their communities. And once inside the prisons, these Africans organized resistance from inside the walls. And Black August came out of this. So can you talk about this a little bit? Yes. As a result of Cointel Pro, a lot of the patriots of the African liberation movement were captured and railroaded into prison through show trials. For decades, a lot of these brothers have languished in prison. The state has refused to recognize them as political prisoners and political prisoners and, and prisoners of war. But the fact remains is that the UN says that all colonized and oppressed people have the right to fight against repressive regimes, including armed struggle, and that these, pre and that these captured combatants are political prisoners and prisoners of war. So we have political prisoners and prisoners of war in the United States, regardless of whether the government chooses to recognize them or not. Mumia Abu-Jamal, Sunday after Kuli, these brothers just got released as opposed to Mumia, but they was released decades after being confined. And in a lot of instances, in the instance of uh, Wallace in New Orleans, he was released and died just a matter of months after, after he was released from prison. So they keeping our freedom fighters incarcerated for decades and only releasing them when they're on their deathbeds, which is a crime and an injustice in and of itself. But these are all our political prisoners. These brothers and sisters, they fought for our freedom. They fought for our liberation, our self-determination. And they not only need to be remembered, it needs to be demanded that they be released so they're not die in prison after being there 30, 40 years. These brothers made the ultimate sacrifice for our people. They sacrificed their lives and risked their lives for the freedom of our people. And we need to support them.
That was All the Young and Fine Men by Elaine Brown from her 1973 self-titled album, Elaine Brown. You are listening to Black Power Talks produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we are discussing Black August with Makondo Sinke. So, Uhuru, you close your article with the quote, imprisonment is an integral and inseparable part of the colonization of Africans in America. It is just another form of the captivity we have experienced and endured under colonialism. This statement really sums up the role of colonialism in the imprisonment of Africans. Did your own experience in the colonial prison system influence this understanding? And how did the Burning Spirit newspaper play a role in that understanding? And we've talked about that a little bit, but you know, let us know. Yes, my understanding is, is that 
the oppression of our people from the very beginning has always been tied into confinement, confinement to slave forts, to our transportation over here and the way we've been treated. We've always been in prison, whether it's been behind the razor wire fences and concrete walls of colonialism's actual penitentiary, to just being in a society with Jim Crow laws and whites only signs and colored only signs and Negro only signs and where we can go and where we couldn't go and just being heavily policed. All of that's imprisonment, you know? And so with my incarceration, I've always viewed it as just another form of the captivity that African people have had to endure and experience in this country because that's exactly what it is. We've always been captives of colonialism and then coming into this prison system is just where I happen to become socially aware and politically conscious through my own studies because for most Africans who are involved in the streets, the penitentiary becomes our universities. It becomes our alma maters. It becomes the places where we educate ourselves, where we get the education that we didn't get in the colonial education system. It's where we transform the criminal mentality into a revolutionary mentality. It's where we learn the teachings of Franz Fanon, Kwame Nkrumah, Malcolm X, Amalia Shatella. And for me, the Burning Spirit played the critical role because it cleared everything up concerning the plight in the conditions and the predicament of African people in this country, elucidating it in the terms of colonialism and the colonial situation. So it gave me clarity and helped me understand things, whereas I was confused about a lot of things before. Now everything became clear. Then Chairman Amali's teachings and everything he taught was just inspiring. It made you just fire your revolutionary nationalism, your anti-colonialism, because as a youngster, I was always rebellious. I just didn't understand what I was rebelling against. I had misplaced rebellion. I was rebelling against the system and always running away from different institutions they put me in, but I had no political consciousness to give guidance and direction to my rebellion. So therefore I fell into the traps of crime, drugs and gangs and ended up in prison. And this is where I've had to redeem myself and transform my life in a prison cell. But the Burning Spirit played a critical role as the first newspaper that I read that clarified the colonial question for me. So after that, I didn't have no more understanding. I could look at what was happening with African people in America and around the world and knew that it was colonialism and neo-colonialism and not have any misunderstandings that it was racism or anything like that. Now I understood what was happening with our people and I understood that even when I went to court, I was standing in the colonial courtroom, standing before a colonial judge, a, pro, a colonial district attorney, represented by a colonial attorney, and I was going to be incarcerated in a colonial prison. That's what colonialism is in a nutshell. The domination of one people by another. So the Bernie Spear clarified all of this for me. Yeah, Uhuru, you know, we had a comrade who worked in San Quentin and the first time he came across the burning spirit, he was asked to pass an, a cutout from the spear from one comrade to another. That's how he encountered the spear, or at least that's one of the first times he came across it. And he remembers how tattered that was. 
But even in that state, we understand uh, the centrality of the spear. Some comrades that are incarcerated have referred to the spear as a sort of revolutionary Bible while they've been incarcerated. Would you agree to that? Absolutely, of course. That's how I regard the paper because just the burning spear alone can awaken an African in prison politically. Just reading the 14 point platform, what we want, what we believe will make an African politically conscious because it says in one point, we want the release of all African men and women held prison, held in prisons in the US. This is letting us know what the prison system is for us. It's concentration camps. The whole platform speaks to the existence and condition of our people, the struggle of our people, and our right to associate with anybody throughout Africa, the African diaspora, and the world as a whole. So the burning spear is very critical. The articles that's in it, we're not finding those articles anywhere else. We're not reading articles in any other revolutionary newspaper that's based on African internationalism, based on colonialism as a particular mode of production, based on the counterinsurgency, based on the colonial situation of our people. So what I do myself is I simply photocopy articles in the burning spirit and circulate them amongst the brothers on different houses at this prison. That way, brothers on those pods can post these articles and pass these articles around, whether it's being Juma or whether we be on the yard or anything, we can get these articles in their hand because I make it a point to photocopy the point of the spirit so the brothers can read Chairman Amali's editorials and read his commentary because you can become awakened and enlightened and gain insights into the situation about people just from reading his commentaries in the point of the spirit. So that's the way I disseminate the spirit around here. I pass out every issues that I receive and I make photocopies of different articles in them and pass them out to brothers. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Thank you, McIndall, for really clarifying that. And I really appreciate um that that um that metaphor you use, you know, prisons being, you know, your alma mater in the university where Africans go to get, you know, um to get to get revolutionized and really understand, you know, the issue. So um I unite with what you said. And, you know, speaking of that, I know that, you know, libraries have been closed and access to reading materials is very limited in prisons around the U.S. And so how are prisoners like you able to get copies of the Burning Spear newspaper? Well, I got I got my subscription free as a result of the Mufundi Lake Prisoner Subscription Program. And this is a program that can get the Burning Spear into the hands of prisoners throughout the United States because the subscriptions are provided for Africans in prison free of charge. So in order for this program to continue, anybody who is able to do so, donate to the Mofundi Lake Prisoner Subscription Program at theburningspirit.com. This is a very important program. It helps get the burning spirit into the hands of Africans throughout prison. This is an important newspaper that is informative and insightful and they can set brothers and sisters on a path to self-education, self-examination, self-discipline and self-transformation that they need to undergo while they are in prison so that they can come out of prison transformed and they can join the revolution and fight for the liberation and freedom of our people. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, McIndall. Definitely. That's a very important program. 
You have been listening to Black Power Talks produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we discussed Black August with McCondell Sinke. Our theme song, Get Up and Do Something, was produced by Eliki Angoma. We would like to thank our production staff, including Janelle Owens and Abipsa Panda. You can pray until you faint, but if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And it's no need of running and no need of saying, honey, I'm not going to get in the mess.